Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the North American Construction Group Earnings Call for the second quarter ended June 30, 2021. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following management's prepared remarks, there will be an opportunity for analysts, shareholders, and bondholders to ask questions. The media may monitor this call in listen-only mode. They are free to quote any member of management, but they are they are asked not to quote remarks from any other participant without that participant's permission. The company wishes to confirm that today's comments contain forward-looking information and that actual results could differ materially from a conclusion, forecast, or projection contained in that forward-looking information. Certain material factors or assumptions were applied in drawing conclusions or in making forecasts or projections that are reflected in the forward-looking information. Additional information about those material factors is contained in the company's most recent management's discussion and an analysis, which is available on Cedar and Edgar, as well as the company's website at nacg.ca. I will now turn the conference over to Joe Lambert, President and CEO. Thanks, Rebecca, and good morning, everyone. I'm going to give a brief high-level overview of the quarter, turn over to Jason for the financial details, and then we'll close with a deeper dive into a few areas of our business and finish up with the outlook ahead of us before opening it up to any questions you may have. While I'm excited to talk today about our solid Q2 operational and financial performance, I am even more eager to share with you the milestones achieved this quarter, which are integral to our future success and reinforce the confidence we have in our overall corporate strategy. In particular, the progress made through items such as the major contract wins, the DGI acquisition, continued indigenous partnership growth, expanding internal and external maintenance capabilities, progress on our sustainability plans, increasing market diversification, growth, record backlog, record free cash flow projections, record low senior leverage ratio, and increased overall opportunities with line of sight to achieve or exceed our strategic goals. I will talk more in depth on these impressive milestone achievements later on in the deck. These achievements were accomplished during a quarter where we had the largest impact on our workforce due to the pandemic. As stated in my shareholder letter, the third wave impact in Fort McMurray had a 70% increase in positive cases and close contacts requiring quarantine than any previous quarter. Thankfully, our pandemic plan minimized the spread of the virus in our workplace and employee recoveries were better than average. However, the loss of the available workforce in Q2 is estimated to have had a 5 to 10% negative impact on fleet utilization and top line revenue. With that brief preamble, I'll touch on our safety performance on slide four before Jason goes into the financials. Our Q2 total recordable injury rate improved significantly from Q1, and our trailing 12 months is now back within our target range. 
We are continuing our focus on high hazard areas and improved communications to offset pandemic protocols. We do expect continued relaxing of pandemic protocols as infection rates decrease and vaccinations increase. However, we expect some protocols will continue through year end. With those opening comments, I'll pass the call to Jason for our financial review. Thanks, Joe. Good morning, everyone. We'll begin the financial review on slide nine. Revenue for the quarter of $140 million was $69 million ahead of last year's Q2, which was, as we all know, an unprecedented quarter and proves to be a difficult quarter to compare against. The year-over-year variance represents virtually a 100% improvement in revenue and generally came in as expected. The quarter enjoyed fairly standard weather conditions, but as mentioned by Joe, was noticeably impacted by the third wave of COVID-19 in the Fort McMurray region. The case counts in April and particularly May reached a level which resulted in a significant part of our workforce being temporarily unable to report for work. The safety protocols, as well as various risk measures in place, really mitigated what could have been a much worse situation at the mine sites, but we did see impacts to top-line revenue, productive equipment hours, and overall operating utilization. Revenue achieved in the quarter was driven by various mine sites and business lines, which all continue to trend in the right direction. The Millennium, Curl, Aurora, and Mildred Lake mines have maintained their demand recovery, and we are once again witnessing firsthand the long-term resiliency of the oil sands region. In addition, we have mobilized fleet once again into the Fort Hills mine, and while not meaningful to Q2 results, we are excited to be back on that site as they ramp up to full production. Gross profit margin of 10.9% reflected the COVID-19 impact on profit margins as understaffed work crews are inherently less efficient. As disclosed, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy Program continued to support our workforce, which is its stated intention. Outside of COVID-19, the Millennium Mine continued to be a challenging mine site for us, but we feel we have now stabilized the performance of the complex operating conditions and the increasingly large and varied heavy equipment fleet that is commissioned there. Lastly, gross margin was impacted by some upfront bid costs associated with the successful Fargo-Moorhead project, as well as some one-time mobilization costs related to the gold mine project in Ontario. Included in gross profit margin was depreciation of 18.9% of revenue for the quarter. The trend in depreciation as a percentage of revenue has been impacted by our ever-increasing ultra-class fleet, which consists of haul trucks with load capacities greater than 320 tons. We have been strategically investing in these haul trucks over the past two years via complete machine rebuilds and major component overhauls. These investments result in increases to depreciable costs, which consequently drive higher depreciation as a percentage of revenue, resulting in us settling in the high teens as a trend. Direct general administrative expenses in the quarter were $6 million, equivalent to 4.3%. 
This spending percentage is consistent with expectation and was achieved through continued cost discipline and strict attention paid to discretionary and non-essential spending. Adjusted EBITDA of $42.4 million was 33% up for Q2 over 2020 on the factors already mentioned, in addition to the NUNA group of companies, which I'll touch on in the next slide. Adjusted earnings per share for the quarter of $0.32 was driven by adjusted EBITDA less the routine impacts of depreciation for which we booked $26 million this quarter, as well as interest and taxes. Interest specifically continues to hold nicely at a 4% rate and was a $4.2 million cash expense in the quarter. We continue to benefit from both posted bank rates as well as competitive rates in equipment financing. Slide 10 is new for us and is a simple start in highlighting our growing interest in joint ventures. Figures from this slide can be found in note seven of our financial statements. For all of these joint ventures, we fulfill the operator role, but do not own a majority interest and therefore are required to report under the equity method. Our share of revenue in Q2 of $37.9 million is the highest equity accounted revenue we've ever recorded and was primarily achieved within the NUNA group of companies, which is historically fairly slow in Q2. If we look back at Q2 2020, $11.2 million was generated, which at that time was considered solid and was not overly impacted by COVID-19 due to the location of the mine and infrastructure sites. This 250% increase is driven by the gold mine in Northern Ontario and reflects well the successes we are seeing in NUNA. The gross margin in the first half of the year of 19% reflects operational excellence being rewarded in the remote and harsh operating conditions that NUNA operates. Depreciation in the joint ventures is tracking at 5% of revenue, highlighting the smaller sized equipment fleets and the higher labor proportion when comparing to our more traditional heavy equipment fleet business. 2021 is proving to be another step year in our diversification efforts and this slide quantitatively highlights that. For the first half of 2021, 40% of adjusted EBITDA, EBIT sorry, has been generated from outside Fort McMurray, and we are tracking nicely to our 45% target for 2021, following up from 35% in 2020 and 26% in 2019. We will be continuing to enhance our disclosure related to joint ventures in the upcoming Q3 and Q4 reports as their materiality continues to increase, in particular with the addition of the Fargo-Moorhead project. Moving to slide 11, I'll briefly summarize our cash flow. Net cash provided by operations of $26 million was produced by the business and includes the negative impact of non-cash balances that aren't immediately apparent. These primarily relate to the accumulation of cash in our joint ventures, which don't hit our cash flow until the JVs formally declare 
distributions. In addition to this, the continued progress of our rebuild program and the related build of inventory in advance of those rebuilds resulted in a use of cash for inventory of roughly $8 million in this quarter alone. Given the visibility we have of the rebuild program, we do expect inventory to return to normalized levels by year end. Sustaining capital of $19.2 million was dedicated to the maintenance of our existing fleet following a very busy winter season. As our stakeholders are aware, sustaining capital spending is front-weighted in the year primarily for this reason. As a good reference point and ignoring the 2020 exception, additions in the first half of 2019 were approximately 65% of the eventual full year spending. Moving to our balance sheet on slide 12, liquidity of $211 million reflects our strong position. The improvement in the quarter was driven by the issuance of $75 million of convertible debentures. On a trailing 12-month basis, our senior leverage ratio, as calculated by our credit facility, dropped to 1.5 times as at June 30th, primarily due to the issuance of that junior debt and is the lowest level we've ever had. Net debt levels remain consistent over the three months as the modest free cash flow generated in the quarter was used for financing costs, dividends, and share purchases. Lastly for me, on slide 13, we provided our current debt composition, which is now conveniently split into three primary buckets, being our credit facility, equipment financing, and convertible debentures. As mentioned earlier, our cost of debt continues to hold at 4%. Despite talks of increases, we haven't experienced anything noticeable yet. And with those financial comments, I'll pass the call back over to Joe. Thanks, Jason. On slide 15, you'll find our current operational priorities for 2021. This slide summarizes our objectives and I will walk through the topics in the slides that follow and finish up with our outlook. Slide 16 highlights the milestone win of a major infrastructure job in our Red River Valley Alliance with partners Axiona and Shinkun and Benui. As the largest infrastructure project in company history, we are prioritizing the planning, staffing, and pre-mobilization work to ensure a smooth project startup. We believe this project win and a smooth start could provide us additional experience we can leverage when tendering a similar earthworks flood diversion project in Alberta that we expect to come out in RFP before the end of this year. On slide 17, you will see some highlights of our recent acquisition of DGI Trading. At approximately one month post-close, I am happy to report the business transition and integration has progressed smoothly and we see future opportunity for growth as core machines and components have demonstrated to be the most economic method to support internal growth and likewise provides increased external maintenance sales opportunities. On slide 18, we again highlight our substantial progress in diversifying our marketplace. 
In particular, I, I would highlight both the 55% of backlog being awarded outside of oil sands, but also our expectation that we'll grow our oil sands work. This level of backlog combined with continued non-oil sands projects entering the bid pipeline provide what we believe is clear visibility to meeting or exceeding our diversification target. As stated previously, we expect to continue to meet our oil sands customer needs with high utilization of our large fleet, while at the same time improving the utilization of our smaller fleet outside oil sands and reduce the consolidation risk by having more customers in more commodity markets in geographic regions. We will also continue to pursue diversification in low capital intensity growth areas, such as the U.S. mine management contracts and major earthworks infrastructure projects. These contracts generally have fleets provided and as such don't affect our operating utilization measures and offer low to no capital entry and diversification into other commodities and regions. I'll skip to slide 20, which highlights the bid pipeline that drives our confidence in revenue projections and diversification success. In the previous quarter, I had mentioned a couple of near-term mining jobs in Quebec that we were unsuccessful in winning and the major infrastructure job which we did win. As the infrastructure win was larger than the two combined losses, we believe we won our fair share. In debriefing the Quebec opportunities, it appears one of the bids may have been used as an economic analysis for an in-house fleet renewal or expansion. We will continue to pursue the Quebec market and have another, albeit smaller, opportunity in active tender. Bid project inflow continues to maintain pace with the outflow, and we continue to see high demand and expanding opportunities and resources in geographic regions where commodity prices are strong. Lastly, and said previously, we simply believe in our strategy and that a safe, low-cost, experienced contractor with strong indigenous partnerships, an extensive and well-maintained fleet, and a commitment to sustainability will have significant competitive advantage to win our fair share of these tenders. Our equipment utilization priority on slide 21 links closely to our diversification objective as we seek gains in utilization of the smaller end of the fleet, which is uncommitted and underutilized in oil sands. A couple of metrics I'd like to highlight here. One, this is our second best Q2 utilization in the last seven years. And two, had we not had the negative impacts of manpower from third wave of the pandemic, we would have probably been right up there close to Q2 2019. In closing out the slide on utilization, we believe our increasing demand, reduced and hopefully soon to be eliminated pandemic impacts, further diversification and counter-cyclical summer works, including new and seasonal growth and the Ontario gold mine will continue to lessen the Q2, Q3 utilization troughs and provide more consistent and overall improved fleet utilization. Moving on to the next slide 22 in our quarterly sustainability update. This quarter, this quarter, we focused our ESG update on two key areas, being our work to lower emissions and our progress in, in improving diversity and inclusivity in our workforce. On the first topic, I would like to highlight the tangible actions we are taking to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. As a seasoned mining guy that used to be responsible for ore reserve classifications, I like to use the same nomenclature for classifying our actions to reduce emissions. These classifications are proven, probable, and possible. On the proven side of emissions reduction, 
We're actively building and growing our use of solar power in our head office, shop, and component rebuild facilities. In areas where we have permanent facilities, this solar conversion is shown to have clear, proven cost benefit, and we will continue to look at ways we can integrate more into our facilities. On the probable side, we have expectations that our rollout of fleet telematics will provide meaningful capability for us to reduce equipment idle time, increase operations efficiency, and extend asset life, which will correlate into reduced emissions related to those activities. Over the next two years, we expect to install telematics across our entire large equipment fleet and advance the analytic development into artificial intelligence and machine learning. We have an excellent team with great vendor support, and I look forward to sharing with you the benefits we have received as we implement and develop this system. On the possible side, but what we believe to be the greatest impact to emissions reduction is a potential replacement of diesel with hydrogen in high horsepower combustion engines. Hydrogen, especially in Alberta, looks to have good opportunity to be a cost-effective replacement for diesel. While we have much to develop and learn about hydrogen supply and distribution systems, we have seen enough positive potential that we believe a feasibility study for dual-fuel diesel-hydrogen blend high-horsepower combustion engine is both warranted and a solid investment. Initial research suggests hydrogen replacement of diesel will reduce emissions near proportionate to the blend achieved. That is to say, a fuel mix of 40% hydrogen and 60% diesel would be expected to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about 40%. Hydrogen diesel systems have been commercially produced in lower horsepower applications. So we feel the potential for success at higher horsepower applications is reasonable and worth investing in. We expect to know the outcomes of our hydrogen feasibility study in the next six to nine months, and if positive, we would expect to advance into a prototype vehicle in the subsequent 12 to 18 months. On the lower half of the slide, I would just like to highlight the activities to improve inclusivity and diversity within our workforce. We have and continue to develop and implement policies, practices, and training to better attract, retain, cross-train, develop, and advance more female equipment operators and field supervision. We continue to solicit feedback and input from our management and workforce on how we can further improve. We will be rolling out women's mentoring program and site committees here shortly in support of these objectives. We believe our efforts here will not only provide the benefits of a more diverse and inclusive workforce, but also grow and strengthen our access to skill and qualified labor. We likewise continue to expand our indigenous awareness training recognition and promotion of indigenous leaders and cultures, and has significantly grown our work and backlog associated with our longstanding indigenous partnerships. We are very proud of the work we have done and recognition received from our indigenous partners in building long-term fiscal and employment benefits for indigenous communities, and we fully plan and expect to build off that success. As example, I mentioned in my last quarter presentation, our Mikasu partnership had purchased and put to work our first rebuilt 400-ton ultra-class truck. I'm pleased to say that the performance of this asset had le has led to our planning between three to five more assets rebuilds before the end of this year. In our outlook on slide 23, and as mentioned in my letter to shareholders, our achievements over the past few months will primarily impact 2022, and therefore our outlook for the remainder of 2021 remains 
largely consistent with what was disclosed in April. We have tightened the ranges while still allowing for inherent risk of schedule changes in weather. In closing, we believe our opportunities both inside and outside oil sands have never been better and will continue to improve. We continue to believe our shares are undervalued and our continued positive progress in our strategy will create increased value. And like the marathon runner analogy I used in letter to shareholders, we will pace ourselves for the long haul and maintain our capital allocation flexibility for share purchases and or potential dividend increases while still providing the ability for meaningful debt reduction. Naturally, we will likewise pursue accretive M&A opportunities as they present themselves. I will now hand the call back to Rebecca for the Q&A session. Thank you. To ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. If you wish to withdraw your question, you can press the pound sign. Once you have completed your question and would like to return to the queue, please press star 1. We'll take a brief pause to begin the Q&A section. Your first question comes from Aaron McNeil with TD Securities. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my questions. Uh, Jim, you touched on your you touched on in your prepared remarks, but I'm just curious to know, you know, what's your batting average on the diversified projects? And I'm I'm also curious to know how you're identifying projects uh, that you put on your bid pipeline slide. So. Are you only bidding on stuff you think you have a high probability of winning or are you pursuing a whole bunch of stuff and seeing what sticks? So just kind of trying to get a sense of, of that. Well, we, I guess I'd start with we have a pretty extensive business development tracking system where, um, you know, we, we track projects in the resource industry from, you know, initial concepts or where they're in expiration to where they go through feasibility and development and permitting um, and then, you know, in expectations, if, if they if they look like they fit our fleet and our, our usage, that we're going to see a, a pre-qual or an RFP when they come out. You know, as far as when we pursue them, we, we really look at the project itself and how it fits our strategy, our fleet availability, our access to other fleet, um, you know, both in size, duration, what size fleet they're using versus what size fleet we might have uh, more capacity in. And, you know, as far as our win percentage, I, you know, I don't know if that's something you could, you can really put a finger on because uh, it, it can be a, quite a changing marketplace. You know, you, you can have bids that actually never get awarded. You can have projects you track for 10 years that never get permitted. Um, you know, once a bid's there and, and we, we put an RFP in, we usually have a pretty good idea who our competitors are and, and where we might have advantage or not. You know, I, as as an example, on these two Quebec jobs uh, that we did lose, uh, you know, I I think our, our risk there, and and it was a risk we we took clearly, was that we we made an assumption that would need to be a uh, 
a remote workforce with camp and fly in, fly out because we didn't see access. And, and our partners are extremely experienced in this area, and uh, that was their, they were 100% on that. And when we reviewed it, we agreed with them. So, you know, that could have been something unrelated to fleet that could give somebody a commercial advantage if they thought they could get people. But, you know, in, in reviewing that risk, you know, that just wasn't one. So that, you know, that's something where we weigh that into our ability that if, if there were a local guy there and he could get people, then might have a better advantage than us commercially on, on some of that work. So, you know, anytime we look at the bid pipeline, putting a, hey, I think I'll be 10 or 40% accurate in winning these is, is pretty difficult. I, you know, on a per project basis, I could tell you, but, uh, or, or give you my estimate. I can't really tell you, but so it kind of bounces around a bit like that. So I, I don't know if that cover off what you were looking for, Aaron. Yeah, that's great. Maybe a, a more specific question then uh, related to the gold project. Uh, I assume the answer is yes to the first one, but do you see it as a reference for bids on future work? And then if the answer is yes, is there enough work in that area that it could kind of become a, a second, you know, core area for you and somewhere where you, you know, you constantly have a, you know, a, a level of, of activity? Well, when, when we won the, the Ontario Goldmine Project in our Nuna joint venture, we, you know, we highlighted what we thought was our, our advantage there, both with Nuna and our experience, um, the very strong Indigenous partnerships that Nuna has in regions, in addition to being Inuit-owned, and felt we could bring that to other areas. And, and I, you know, I believe in the last quarter or two, I've also highlighted that we felt there was a job in Saskatchewan to be coming up where the procurement team had actually asked us to bid under that same joint venture arrangement because they felt it would be stronger for us. And, and I, we, we've actually received our first RFP from that project and uh, we'll be submitting a, a bid as as the same joint venture structures we have in Ontario Goldmine. So, um, you know, I, I do believe it's proven. We'll, we'll see as, as far as winning this job. Um, it, you know, that would be a pretty good success ratio if in, in two bids with our Nuna JV, we win them both. So that would uh, that would bode well for it. But I, I, I think that structure of our experience, Nuna's experience, the combined fleet efficiency, the manpower efficiency, and the Indigenous relationships is a, you know, a pretty powerful, uh, along with being, you know, a safe, low-cost provider. Uh, it's, it's a pretty compelling RFP we're going to put together. Fair enough. And final question for me, just bringing it back to the core business. I mean, the, the scope and volume increase of that uh, that announcement with the Miccosoo partnership last week was pretty large in the context of the original agreement. So I guess I'm just wondering at a higher level across your, you know, oil sands customers, when you talk to them, are you getting the sense that they're sort of playing catch up right now, given the reduction last year? And if that's the case, how long do you think this sort of surge in activity might last before things start to normalize or maybe you'd characterize it completely differently? So just trying to get your sense of how you're seeing the oil sands outlook in general. Well, I, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to state that the demand is far higher than last year just because of the, the downturn from the pandemic. But, uh, you know, longevity, I, I think what we're seeing is there's a, I certainly perceive a, a stronger demand longer term. And I think um, with this, I, I think we're getting clients that see the value of tying us up uh, longer term. 
So as demand increases and and you want uh, to, to confirm that you have somebody there that you trust and value to do it, uh, that I think we're going to see more longer term commitments from our clients because uh, of, you know increasing demand and they want to lock down their guys. Makes sense. That's all for me. I'll turn it over. Thanks, guys. No worries. Thanks, Aaron. Your next question comes from the line of Yuri Link with Canaccord Genuity. Hey, good morning, guys. Morning, Yuri. Morning. Um, I guess wanted to just dig in a little bit on uh, on the the DGI acquisition. Um, wondering a few things, if if just from a modeling perspective, if you'd be able to put any uh, revenue, expected revenue on that. Um, or, or EBITDA margin uh, profile of that of that business, and um, any is, is this a is this a cost synergy play for for you guys, or or more on the on the revenue synergy side uh, as as you look at uh, maybe further moves in in Australia related to DGI? I'll let Jason take the first part, and I'll answer the second as far as the. Yeah, I'll just pull up the uh, the slide, Yuri. Um, so, uh, as far as revenue versus cost, uh, about we've said about 25% of DGI sells into us, so that would be a, a cost synergy to us. Um, you can see from the EBITDA multiple that we disclosed of three times, um, we're we're kind of in the eight million dollar uh, EBITDA impact range. Some of that will come through cost savings, as I said, about a quarter of that, and then the remainder will just hit our revenue and costs. Um, you know, they, they should be, you know, virtually zero depreciation and in margins in the 30 to 40 range, uh, like a part supplier would would normally enjoy. So much different business model than us, but, uh, you know, will be definitely accretive and, and I, I would say is not indicative of our M&A uh, typical targets. This was a vertical integration uh, move, but Joe can elaborate more on strategy. But those are some of the high-level figures. I, you know, I uh, I think we're too early to quantify some of these things, Yuri. But I, I certainly see uh, synergies and opportunities in the crossover of business, both both with the vertical integration. But you know, just to give it a bit more color, uh, you know, DGI's access to use components worldwide and knowing where these things are is of extremely high value to us. And I, I'll give you an example that if, if for some reason you fail a component on a piece of equipment, um, an, an engine, a transmission, a final drive, a diff housing, and, and there are occasions when there's not used cores readily available. You can't find somebody that has a used core to remanufacture and you have to actually go out and buy a new one a new core or a new a new engine completely rebuilt, the cost differential is massive. So having somebody who can find you those used cores, um, you know, and, and knows where to look for them and is focused not just on their business of selling but on our business, uh, I, I think we're going to have some synergy off that, both from a component basis and from a whole machine. So finding whole machines and historically DGI has been one of our largest providers of finding used whole machines for second life rebuilds. 
And, you know, as I've stated before, those are great value for us. And I mentioned in the text that, um, you know, rebuilding whole machines for Second Life versus new, we're, you know, we're, we've been doing that at 50 to 60 percent of the cost of new and, and actually having better warranty on our components than a new unit would. So, you know, that's like kind of DGI for us. Us for DGI would be uh, certainly there. I think believe it's about 25 percent of their work is done in Alberta. I believe our, you know, we have an opportunity to not only uh, cross-sell or, or provide some of our clients access to DGI, but also uh, to support them in um, whether it's finding and tearing down equipment uh, in our own facilities or, or support in the in the field where we already have maintenance personnel. So I don't have a lot of quantifiable information yet, but I, I'm I'm certain in the quarters going forward we'll be able to identify those synergies and those opportunities that we've been able to uh, between us and between DGI bringing into us more so and us bringing into DGI more so. Okay, that's helpful. Um, second and last one for me, maybe just for Jason, um, wanted to clarify, um, are, you, are you saying now that, that uh, depreciation is going to be in the, in the, in the high teens, um, kind of on, on an annualized basis? Um, going forward, and if so, um, are you able to help us at all with with revenue guidance, some kind of revenue range, so we can better model uh, DNA, given it's a pretty large uh, expense item? Yeah, uh, I would I would say it's trending in that way. Obviously, we've been going through a step change since, really, since the Acon purchase in 2018. We've seen steady. Uh, increases in depreciation and uh, as a percentage so I think high teens uh, is a good modeling input and and then backing into uh, you know uh, into that gross expense based on revenue um, I think our core business which is reported revenue um, you know 2019 is you know laid out a pretty good roadmap for what our kind of core fleet is is able to do and so I think that's a good uh, you know revenues uh, profile to look at what will be interesting obviously is the equity accounted revenue which you know we think for 2022 is going to be you know 30 to 40 percent of combined revenue so that's and 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 within what equity accounted investments depreciation should be in the five to ten percent range, so we could see depreciation uh, much different between our joint ventures and our and our core fleet. So, hope that's helpful for modeling. But that's uh, the trend that we're we're seeing right now. Okay, I'll turn it over. Thanks. Your next question comes from the line of Brian Fast with Raymond James. Thanks. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Brian. Um, just on the big project win in the U.S., um, could you talk about your strategy in expanding in the U.S. market? And do you think that this project win opens up similar P3 type opportunities? I, you know, I think whether U.S. or Canada, that uh, large infrastructure jobs that have a major component of earthworks, um, those are the ones we're interested in. So, you know, as they come up, they're you know, they're, they're not a consistent flow, but they do come up like this, uh, the one in the flood diversion in Calgary. You know, 
I think I've been talking about it for five years, but it looks like it's going to be coming forward now. Um, you know, that's that's one where there's a bit of road and a bit of bridge work, but there's an awful lot of earthworks, and that's where we would see opportunities for us to participate in infrastructure jobs. Um, so any, you know, there are hydro projects that have earthworks, uh, roadworks that have or flood diversions. Those would be the ones, and, and obviously we'll continue to look at uh, mine management opportunities uh, we've, that we've been successful in in the U.S. We'd look at those uh, additionally. Does that cover off what you're looking for, Brian? Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Joe. Um, uh, and then just further on that to that contract win, how much of the contract award is slated for the construction portion uh, of the project, and then how much is tilted towards the, the O&M part of the contract? About 65% of uh, the headline number, you know, which was uh, around 2.2 billion was the entire project. Well, 65% of that is the, is the uh, construction project, and then the tail is, uh, is the remainder. Okay, thanks. And then just on labor supply issues, um, beyond the impacts of, uh, of what's happening with uh, COVID, um, I mean, has it been difficult to, to source labor in this market? I, you know, we've, we've always struggled and continue struggling are putting in a lot of practices as far as getting maintenance. Um, we haven't seen a lot of uh, uh, issues in getting operations and operators. I, I think our probably the, the continuing issue is besides the pandemic is the limited travel. So when we're bringing people in uh, from different areas and, and doing fly and fly out operations, you know, the it's there's not really convenient flights in a lot of places anymore. And so people aren't willing to come, um, you know, if, if it's, you know, if I'm going to spend 25 hours to get from the East Coast to, to Northern Alberta and I get a week off, it makes it pretty hard to, to do. So I, I think as those travel restrictions uh, loosen up here in the next few months, I think, and we get more flights to more places, we'll see better access uh, going forward. Okay, that's a good color. That's it for me. Thanks. Your next question comes from the line of Tim Monticello with ATB Capital Markets. Hey, thanks for taking my questions this morning. Um, no first one, first one is just on uh, the utilization. One of the slides you showed the utilization progression through the quarter, and it looks like it's kind of trending down. Um, you know, April, May, and June. Um, I just wanted to round that square with um, with the commentary in the MDNA saying that June was, you know, a pretty strong quarter relative to the first two months of, of the quarter. Sorry, strong month relative to the first two months of the quarter. It, I'm not sure what, as far as April, May, June, what those exact numbers are. Do you have those, Chris? Yeah, just pull them up here. I know that, you know, the 53 that was the average of the quarter is the average of the month. But... Uh, yeah, so we, we saw it you know, the momentum really carried us through June um, and did post a, a, you can see it in the graph on slide 21 that um, it was June was a lower utilization than May. I think where we saw efficiencies was just in our planning around, you know, getting, getting work 
force to the equipment that was available. So um, we saw a nice profitability increases, but we expect utilization to turn the corner here in July and, and moving forward. Yeah, I, I wouldn't focus a lot on month to month accuracy, uh, Tim, as, as like when, when we pick up and we move um, in, in this instance into Fort Hills, you know, you, you lose several weeks moving equipment from site to site in operations opportunities too. So, you know, it's not, in, in June, you might not have had the, the issues of the third wave as we're coming off of that, but, but we are mobilizing fleet in any one month that can have a significant impact. Okay. I guess, you know, more importantly, it would just be, you know, are you seeing pretty strong rebounds into the third quarter? Yeah, absolutely. I, and, you know, but I would hesitate to say is that I saw that for the second quarter too. When we, and we were talking in April um, and uh, we, we were coming off the second wave. We are at the trough after the second wave and um, vaccinations were rolling out. Really didn't anticipate that third wave at all. You know, and for it to actually not only be a third wave hit us, but to hit us worse than the other two damn near combined. Um, you know, so I hesitate to jump out in front and say too much, but you know, in general, yes, if things progress as, as planned with uh, vaccinations and decreasing cases and, and opening up, um, yeah, we would fully expect that to happen, Tim. Okay, great. And is that basically the one, I guess, sort of pivotal, pivotal factor which underpins the range in your, your EBITDA guidance for the year? Yeah, I would say so. Okay, got it. Um, second question here is um, on Ford Hills. Uh, Suncor released results today, and, and they kept the production guidance for Ford Hills uh, for the year. And I think one of the factors that they mentioned was sort of um, inability to get third-party contractors. So, you know, that, that points to sort of a tightening of the market and, you know, um, sort of dovetails with the, the extension in the contract you saw in the oil sense earlier than or I guess uh, subsequent to the quarter. All right, what, what are you seeing in pricing dynamics, and um, is that market pretty tight for equipment? Uh, certainly, the large equipment is is tight, and you know demand. But you know you really don't know whether clients have opportunities to defer, to balance out. Um, but you know, from an RFP perspective, we we certainly see increasing demand. Um, you know, opportunities at repricing in there. I, I think you know one of the things we see is, is, and I would highlight is that, you know, Q2 is usually our lowest kind of margin on the project perspective because our our uh, our escalations, both in contracts and negotiated, generally apply in the second half of the year. And on the other side of that, the cost side, our, our labor because of burdens, and these aren't huge differentials, but our burden in the first half of the year is higher than the second half. Um, so, you know, those are a bit of an impact too. So some of the okay. pricing will improve because an escalator applies in June, and and typically that's when our our uh, annual escalations applying contracts is in the second half of the year. Okay, got it. Do you think across the, the remainder of your portfolio in the oil sands you could see some similar um, um, expansions to contracts? Yeah, I, you know I. I we think there's opportunities to uh, to extend terms. Uh, you know, I think over the next year, we 
we might have better opportunities to extend on those uh, MSAs and, and get and have the associated commitments on them. So, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, that's all the questions I had. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. And as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Your next question comes from the line of Maxim Sitchiff with National Bank Financial. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Max. Um, Joe, I guess uh, operationally, um, you know, we've had obviously some strange weather. Uh, how is that shaping any impact or ne negative impact on on um, how you're ramping up through uh, Q3? I, I don't think the weather is impacted as, you know, as much as the, the pandemic. I mean, weather is really, especially in Alberta, is, is predominantly which month you're going to get rain in in the summer. And sometimes it's June, sometimes it's July, sometimes it's August, sometimes it's the whole summer. Um, but I, I don't, you know, we aren't expecting anything unusual it just may be heavier in June than in July or heavier in July than in August. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't expect any weather impacts. We, we, we always, you know, I qualify that with, I don't predict the weather either. So, uh, um, but, you know, we haven't seen in, in a longer period of time, looking at quarter over quarter or year over year, that a significant impact from weather this year. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you so much. And then just wanted to circle back to the Fargo project. was wondering if you don't mind maybe, first of all, talking about sort of the risk profile uh, of this project and, and how sort of you're managing that part. And then maybe the second part is um, a question to Jason uh, in relation to how we should be thinking about revenue progression uh, kind of between, you know, T0 and for the next uh, couple of years just from a modeling perspective. Thank you. I, on the first part, Max, I think it's no different than any other project other than we want to maintain a very strong focus on, you know, the planning, um, planning of getting people in there, equipment in there, having uh, the fit, making sure you get the right gear at the right time, and uh, qualified operators. Uh, and, and more than anything else, it's doing good planning and expecting uh, changes to happen and, and having plan Bs and Cs and Ds for when they do um, so, uh, you know, for our part, it's really putting good guys on the job that have the experience and the skills to perform here, um, and then and then doing the planning associated with it. So, uh, you know, this is a, an earthworks job. This isn't. It might be a big P3 in in North Dakota, but it's another damn construction job for us, and that's with with an M, not an N, on the end of it. So, <laughs> so the. Uh, you know, I, I we, we just want to be very focused on doing good planning, good scheduling um, on people and assets. If you know, making sure we're, we're setting up training programs to, to bring in skilled operators and mechanics, and uh, and anticipating anything that can happen there, you know, weather-wise or anything else. And, and, and there's no issue in terms of uh, sh shifting people around right now, right? Despite uh, obviously challenges with with the border and things like that. So, so just uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, we, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, North American, current North American employees on, on other sites that will be heading to this one. Um, and, you know, I don't think we'll find an issue uh, recruiting or finding skilled operators or, or um, even staff people in, in those areas. 
we, you know, we've done quite a bit of recruiting with our U.S. coal mine management contracts in and around the U.S., so we've got a pretty good understanding of that marketplace. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I guess uh, just off the top, uh, obviously revenue for this project will go through equity accounting, Max, so, uh, you know, be careful where you put it as far as uh, revenue projections. Um, very little revenue we expect to recognize this year, um, you know, upon financial close in Q4. Uh, the lion's share, 75% uh, of the $650 million will be over the four years of 2022 through 2025, uh, with the biggest year being 2024. So it will continue to escalate uh, in 22, 23, and then 24 is the is a, what's modeled as the, the biggest year, and then comes down in 25. Um, and then and then outside of that, you know, there's a couple of years of inspection before substantial completion, and then the O&M contract. So. Um, Definitely a lot of uh, lot of activity in those uh, in those critical years, uh, 22 through 25. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you so much. And then the, the last question: um, there was um, a remark in terms of uh, uh, capital allocation and potential dividend increase. Uh, just curious if you don't mind maybe talking about you know how you think about that as a percentage of, uh, I don't know, net income or free cash flow? Like, what, what are the parameters that you are using internally to drive your decision-making uh, on, on that side? All right, those would be the parameters. And, Max, every, every fall we have our board meeting where we review our dividends, and uh, we'll be having that discussion coming up. And, uh, you know, we'll share that outcome with you guys when, when it comes. Okay, fair enough. That's it for me. Thank you so much. Good. Thanks, Max. And your final question comes from the line of Richard Darnley with Longport Partners. I, I'm intrigued with the Fargo-Moorhead contract. Uh, who, who, in general, were you bidding against there? Uh, it's intriguing that a, a Spanish, Israeli, and Canadian company would, would win a contract in the U.S., uh, and maybe I just don't understand big contracts. Could you talk about that? Sure. The, you know, this started with multiple consortiums. So generally, every team that's putting something together here is is a, a, a mix of several groups of, of construction people and experienced construction people, and uh, and then it was shortlisted down to three of which our team was one. You know, as far as I, I think it's a bit misleading as far as where companies' headquarters are. Um, you know, as an example, Axiona just, I think they're just celebrated their 20th year in North America. Um, you know, and, and same with Shinkanu and Benui had been doing operations across North America. You know, some of these large international construction contractors, they might have a headquarter somewhere, but they're very experienced, um, in, you know, in North America. So I, I you know, I think it comes down to the the technical package, the execution, the, and the pricing, along with our experience in particular areas um, that we believe uh, carried us across the finish line on that particular project. I see. Great. Thank you. No worries. Okay.
right, this concludes the Q&A section of the call, and I will pass the call over to Joe Lambert, President and CEO, for closing comments. Thanks, Rebecca. And my thanks to all of you for joining us today and for your continued interest in the in our growth and diversification journey. I'm very excited about the opportunities to advance the business this year. And, uh, you know, obviously we all hope and expect to be a much healthier and more stable environment going forward. Thanks again. Thank you. This concludes the North American Construction Group Q2 2021 conference call. You may now disconnect. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.